<laughs> cool evening, booze and ghouls. You're in for a scary ghoul episode of a, a eviscerating scabs. Fuck, this is hard. <laughs> How the hell did the Crypt Keeper do it? I don't know. But I, I'm sure he turned every word that began with the letter G into ghouls. <laughs> you know what? Shut up. <laughs> I have a ghoulstronomic <laughs> intestinal disorder. You know what? I tried my best, okay? <laughs> Your best? Shut up. <laughs> John, I wanted to start with, actually, we we had something interesting come up in the news. Ooh, just to follow news. up. Uh, fo- yeah, I just wanted to follow up uh, with something we discussed last week. Mm-hmm. Last week we discussed Godzilla, and we joked that you know it could share a universe with King Kong and Pacific Rim because they're about giant monsters and robots fighting each other. Exactly. And we laughed it off. But John, we got sent a story mm. from Collider. Apparently, the director of Pacific Rim Uprising, the most anticipated film of 2018. <laughs> Great. Said there's a possibility that, yes, there could be a crossover between the Pacific Rim franchise and the Godzilla slash King Kong universe that's going on right now. <laughs> I can already I can already picture it in my head. Yes. Godzilla is attacking London, and Bond goes, things certainly are heating up. <laughs> yes. Now, was this a coincidence? Yes, yes, it was. But mm, I don't know. I think we're, let's, we're big trendsetters. Yeah, let's say we do have the powers of divination and can will a movie franchise into existence Mm -hmm. do you think uh bond godzilla is the way to go or do you have another idea you know racking my brain i've always wanted to see a dark and gray reboot of uh reboot and then just watch the universe collapse in on itself (laughs) a reboot of reboot (laughs) a reboot of reboot because hashtag 90s kids yeah i was confused there i thought you said just i thought you were correcting yourself on the word reboot but no no (laughs) I want more reboot in my life. Why why haven't we revived reboot yet? If we can have know. Tron Legacy, why can't we have reboot redemption? I don't know. Yeah. Reboot it's annihilation. It's reimagining of the reboot revitalization. That's what we need to do. <laughs> I was thinking revolution. since a big trend right now is having one a single actor play two roles. Oh yeah. I'm thinking particularly this last season of Fargo, Ewan McGregor played two two roles. Mm-hmm. And then we currently have the Deuce. Which has the Deuce, a, James, James Franco, Franco plays two roles. Yep. Mm-hmm. Tilda Swinton has played two roles in the last like five movies she's been in. <laughs> um, because America's appetite for Tilda Swinton can never be satiated. Yes. Now, I was thinking, I'm sure Matt Damon would love this idea. <laughs> and he needs a little rehabilitation after the whole Harvey Weinstein thing. <laughs> so, why don't we have Jason Bourne have to, uh, needs to recruit a brilliant mathematician to infiltrate the government? <laughs> Jason Bourne, meet Will Hunting. <laughs> what, do you have a talk, you fucking homo? <laughs> I love this idea. Yes. And then we can get Private Ryan in there somehow. They need to get they need a pickpocket so they get Rusty from the Oceans movies. <laughs> oh, but, oh, Private Ryan be dead by now. It's sad, but it's true, let's be honest. <laughs> no, it's, yeah, you're right. He could barely, you know, kneel down to pay his perspective. Say goodbye. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Maybe he's Hey, lo- happy Halloween. <laughs> Welcome to the Aspiring Snobs Podcast. And yes, for Halloween, and to pay our respects to a late great filmmaker, we decided to revisit the original Night of the Living Dead. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it. You're ignorant. They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it! You're acting like a child! They're coming for you! Look! There comes one of them now! He'll hear you! Here he comes now! I'm getting out of here! Johnny! I was wondering if this was the OG zombie film, but not quite. I mean, even Plan 9 from Outer Space has zombies in it. I guess so, yeah. But, I mean, this is the movie that kind of cauterized the zombie mythology. 
this idea that they're reanimated corpses and the only way you can kill them is by smashing them in the brain. And I don't know if Plan 9 from Outer Space had the whole infection angle that this one does as well. No, so yeah, there's this has been a whole myth of the 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 dead rising, you know, to live <laughs> to attack the living. Mm-hmm. So that's that's been kind of a, a a story going back to old folk folklore. But you're right, this this is definitely the movie that definitely established the the idea that zombies can infect the living. They desire brains, and they kind of lumber towards you, and and also the scale of it too. I think mm-hmm. the fact that there's so many, you don't even know what to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That you're kind of trapped in this way, but it was a great establishment of independent filmmaking. <laughs> this is in an, in and of itself pretty much a student film. Yeah, it honestly feels that way. This movie originally came out in 1968, but it feels like a decade older than that. <laughs> Are you sure? Actually, I was I was surprised by its quality. I was expecting, like you said, a student film with all the little and like we saw Godzilla last week. There are a ton of technical issues with Godzilla. Mm-hmm. And I was expecting the same here, like different soundtracks between cuts, you know, histrionic acting. Oh no, this this totally felt like a 1950s B movie to me. I mean, come on, this is only a year separated from like Bonnie and Clyde. Well, that's true. Well, I was gonna say not to say that the, the productions overlap in any way whatsoever. No, but I'm just saying. <laughs> no, but it, actually, this came at kind of the perfect time because this uh, there's this opening sequence. There's this chase. And I was actually really absorbed by it because it's handheld. They're like Dutch angles or something like that. And the filmmaking was alive in a way. Oh, yeah. And it reminded me, I don't know if anyone's ever written an essay or slate piece on this, but <laughs> it reminded me, I was wondering if George A. Romero was inspired by the French New Wave. Um, I mean, that's certainly a possibility. I think I read that his biggest inspiration for this movie was Carnival of Souls. Yes. Which, which I, I, I don't think either one of us have seen. No, nor even, like, I never even heard of it. But, oh, okay. again, things like handheld, like, you picture a movie from the 60s or 50s, you still picture, like, wide shots, you still picture, like, you know, conventional staging. Mm-hmm. And what the movies like Breathless and the, these French, young French filmmakers were doing was, like, taking it off the tripod, you know, putting it at different angles, intense lighting and, and things like that, like, really kind of experimenting with the form. And that's, that's feel like what... Romero did in this kind of opening sequence. Um, this is following perhaps the most famous scene, <laughs> the trademark scene, the opening scene, where they, uh, a young lady and his brother visit their visit a cemetery to pay their respects to their father. Mm-hmm. Barbara and Johnny. Yes. And I was also surprised by the quality of this scene. I thought it was like pretty solid writing and acting. <laughs> yeah, the acting is, like, for a bunch of amateurs, it's actually really good. Oh, yeah. For, and especially for just a B-monster movie. Yeah, well, not universally good, but in general, pretty good. <laughs> you know, George A. Romero, he was an actor's director. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Ask Joe Pilato in his later movies. <laughs> um, we'll yeah. get to the other Dead films, but for now, yeah, let's focus on Night of the Living Dead. Again, I was actually... You you still you think it, this is like a, like a cheesy B-movie. Like, I was actually stunned by... Not only the way we watched it, you can you, anybody can actually watch this. This movie's technically in the public domain. Mm-hmm. Little piece of trivia because the uh, copyright office actually required a little copyright notice during the opening titles. Mm. It needed to say like what the company was, and this movie for forwent that little mark. So they thought, <laughs> oh, it's just in the public domain. Yeah. And it wasn't until I think like Apocalypse Now, like directors didn't want to have to do that little copyright notice anymore. Francis Ford Coppola actually wanted to show the title in a piece of graffiti, and there's no way to, and there was no way to bring up that little copyright notice in graphics without it taking you out of the film. Mm-hmm. So he and a lot of other directors say like, "Hey, come on, we don't need this. Let's just stick it on the credits," and that's what they do now. Yeah, and also because of it, this movie really only made its money by basically being like kind of a drive-in classic and unfortunately oh, yeah. george a. romero got none of those distribution rights <laughs> so this movie ended up making almost 250 times its budget and he saw oh, yeah. barely a dime from that <laughs> yes well he still had a long distinguished career following that oh of course we're talking yeah. about the director of monkey shines here <laughs> i see martin's a solid horror film i've heard i haven't seen it but <laughs> <laughs> well okay I don't, I'm not disrespecting the dead here, okay, because <laughs> they could come back and eat me at any moment. Um, yeah. I believe George A. Romero was cremated. <laughs> okay, <laughs> just in case. Yeah. Uh, George A. Romero 
comes from I think this certain classification of directors, which is like um, you put them in the same school as like John Carpenter or maybe even like a Rob Zombie. But basically, they both made Halloween films. But you know this idea that it's like they're not really perfectionists, but they're very ins- idiosyncratic in their styles, and they're almost like you know they come from this younger, hungrier generation where and they just like. They're more obsessed with kind of like look, feel, um, mood, effects, gore, and blood. Oh yeah, I mean they definitely. Well, yeah, I mean, they're low budget filmmakers. What I what I more classify them as, mm-hmm. and unfortunately they've been kind of um, consigned to that genre. Yeah, and so, I don't know. I don't know. Like when you think about the great directors like Steven Spielberg and. Uh, Stanley Kubrick, like these were perfectionists. These were people who did like 50 different takes and they were just meticulous in their craft. And I don't know if you can really classify George Romero as that. And so it's like, can we really call him a great filmmaker? I mean, uh, uh, like, I don't know, I, I, I say, I feel bad saying that. But again, well, it's just because he was his own thing, he was his own character. Hey, hang on, John. Yeah, we are talking about movies here. It's okay. not like you know, it's not like we're like you know, college football coaches that have to vote on rankings or something like that. You know, I, 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 filmmakers I, I, can be their own. I thing. just think you know, he doesn't have the character to maintain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, bad strength of schedule on George A. Romero. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. He definitely came from a generation of of hungry young filmmakers uh, working primarily in low budget who actually got their start. It was, speaking of B-movies, a lot of these young, hungry directors you're talking about got their start working for Roger Corman productions. Ah, yes. Like these cheap, dirty things like Jonathan Demme. That's also how he got his start. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. And it's funny you mention that because the the opening sequence, which I lauded earlier because of the, the things like the Dutch angles and the handheld and, and the, just the excitement of the scene, it reminded me of a lot of one of Martin Scorsese's earliest movies called Who's That Knocking at My Door? That sounds kind of familiar. That's... That's like kind of an exploitation-ish kind of like. Movie, yeah. Isn't it? So yes, it's an exploitation, but it's also imbued with Martin Scorsese's personality because it is about. Um, and when he was young... still on coke, so he's like, "Oh yeah, then we'll do this." <laughs> yeah, uh, about a young hustler on the streets, of, a young Italian American on the streets of Brooklyn. And there's a scene, there's a there's a rumble in that movie, um, which is kind of shot the same way. The it's a handheld, and the camera's circling around, and there are quick cuts and things like that. And yeah, there's just an energy and excitement to it. And it reminded me a lot of that, but what I think, like, when you talk about, like, kind of the career differences, like, obviously, people regard um, Martin Scorsese as an A-plus, you know, Oscar-winning director, and and George A. Romero obviously never reached those heights. Yeah. And I think that's because, well, you know, uh, let's say, like, you know, Martin Scorsese moved on to Taxi Driver, which was originally conceived by writer Paul Schrader. Mm -hmm. You know, that's kind of, that has exploitation elements, but it's also got, you know, a, a... a lot of it's imbued with a lot of thematic and kind of cultural resonance at the time exactly yeah and again he's he's more looking at kind of a level production versus <laughs> you know george a romero went on to do dawn of the dead that's not exactly a you know a level production <laughs> well, no it still has some thematic but you can kind of see yeah, yeah yeah you can kind of see how their trajectories change like mm-hmm. their their ambitions become different and and also like you know part of it you know maybe is their their talent is different too yeah, I mean, I, that's that's one of the interesting things you can make about George A. Romero's career is that his movies still had kind of thematic resonance and messages, but he never kind of escaped that kind of B-movie aesthetic. Like, for example, I was making fun of Monkey Shines earlier, but Monkey Shines yeah. has, you know, even though the premise is completely stupid, it is, I think, trying to say something about, you know, how people treat the disabled in our society. <laughs> okay. They See, just decided gonna... to use a murderous monkey to demonstrate that message. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, you said that George A. Romero tried to imbue um, a lot of his movies with thematic resonance. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I find that accidental. Oh, yes, and I think that's definitely the case with this movie. Yeah, so we should also explain that um, the lead in our movie is a character named Ben, played by Dwayne Jones. Mm-hmm. Now, he's a he's a black actor, and yeah, this is one of the earliest movies to have a black leading man. Exactly, and that wasn't the intention. He just no. auditioned for the role, and he got it because he's a really good actor. Yes, and he's great in this performance. Mm-hmm. And um, but the but as the story progresses, like pe- people can see, like oh, it's a it's a it's a message about civil rights because this was released in the late '60s, and yeah, it's like, like at the heights of the at the heights of racial tension in the civil rights era. So people kind of grafted on this or imbued it with this um, 
this kind of metaphor for the civil rights movement when really that wasn't George A. Romero's intention. No, absolutely And I think not. following that career, he's like, okay, how can I... I love these kind of schlocky <laughs> horror films, particularly zombie films. How can I graft a, a cultural resonance onto that? Mm. And sometimes it's successful, as in Dawn of the Dead, and but a lot of times it wasn't, <laughs> as in Diary of the Dead. <laughs> or Land of the Dead. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean... He's really good. Ben is really good in this film, or the actor. Oh yeah, is really Dwayne Jones is film. excellent in this film. I mean, yeah. you see it immediately. I mean, so we start with the character of Barbara, mm-hmm. who runs, who's escaping a horde of, um, not really a horde, but a group of a small coterie of zombies <laughs> out of this graveyard. <laughs> she uh, run absconds to a little farmhouse, mm-hmm. and that's when Ben comes in, and he, and immediately you see the agency of this character. Like he knows exactly what to do. Yeah, he takes charge immediately, and you know as a opposed to Barbara, he's very level headed, he's very cerebral. And I think oh, yeah. his backstory is he's like he's a college he he works at a university in some capacity. So you well, yeah, kind of see I, his intellectual level headedness throughout the film. Yeah. Um I think it's speaking of how George A. Romero originally envisioned the the uh the character, I think he was supposed to be a truck driver. Mm-hmm. And that was the source of his resourcefulness. But when um, <laughs> Dwayne Jones auditioned with his very ethereal, stentorian style, <laughs> they changed his backstory to be be more of an academic. Yeah. And I, but still, I felt like, bad because yeah, throughout the film, I was thinking like, oh, he has like a great Sidney Poitier quality. Wait, John, that's racist. Don't say that. <laughs> Well, it's kind of a shame too. I think he does. He he does have uh, like a lot of acting chops, and it's a shame like he never reached those career heights again. Like George A. Romero, he was kind of consigned to these you know horror B movies. Yeah, based on the success of this film. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we kind of talked about that with Psycho a few weeks earlier too. Like you know Anthony Perkins, who's a great actor, but because he plays you know creepy and weird so well, you know he mm-hmm. sadly gets typecast. Yeah. We've got. To, we have to wait for Johnny. We have to go out and get Johnny. He's out there. Please, don't you hear me? We've got to go out and get him. Please! We have got to go get Johnny! Please help me! Please! Don't you know what's going on out there? This is no Sunday school picnic. Don't you understand? My brother is alone! Your brother is dead. No! My brother is not dead! And it's also, I think it's important that, you know, Ben is a very kind of cerebral, smart character because it kind of puts him in contrast with another survivor we run into. Um, yes, the, the Cooper family. Yes, the Cooper family uh, who are uh, hiding out in the basement. They think that's the safest place. And we don't we don't initially realize that they're down there until they just pop up like, aha! No, I was actually stunned. It happens about halfway through the movie. Mm-hmm. Which, um, again, like at that point came as a surprise to me. Like I was aware that this movie was about a group of survivals huddled in this farmhouse. Mm -hmm. But like when you talk about like kind of half a midway point twist, (laughs) this one, this one worked. Um, However, the actor who plays Mr. Cooper is not the caliber of actor that Dwayne Jones is. And the movie suffers for it. No, I, I, I would disagree with you on that one because I think it, it adds a nice contrast. I think it adds a nice contrast, the fact that he's oh, very no, kind he's of terrible. Like, he's terrible. No, he gives, like, good diction, so he's like, I, I think we should, you know, like... <laughs> yeah, natural diction, playing to the back row of the mezzanine. <laughs> you know, the way normal people do in a survival situation. Look, Dwayne Jones, like... He he's at, he's adding like a you know certain level of realism to it, and to contrast that you've got this like oh I'm the gruff bad guy, <laughs> this is what I think we should do. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a, another point in the movie's favor, like how it establishes your sympathies for these characters. Mm-hmm. Like it's kind of subtle. Like again, you see it immediately when with uh, Dwayne Jones's character coming in immediately. You see like how handy he is, how much how he cares for Barbara initially. Like he's not yelling at her. Mm-hmm. 
Whereas uh, this Mr. Cooper character, like, just barges in, like, I, oh, I, we weren't hiding in the basement. We could hear you. I mean, we couldn't hear you. I mean, they, you could have been a zombie up there. <laughs> well, again, I think what makes this movie work is the character dynamics, is the fact that it sets up mm. so much contrast. You get uh, Tom and uh, Ben fighting constantly over what they should do. And then you have Barba, who's just kind of like, at first, she's just like hysterical, but then she kind of turns catatonic. Yeah, I, well, I find that interesting because I felt like the the character dynamics were kind of one note. I didn't see those relationships progress really. Like Barbara, as you said, like she she gets consigned to the couch pretty much, <laughs> and is catatonic throughout this whole thing. I thought the twist there was going to be she's slowly succumbing to the zombie infection. Oh, really? Yeah, because there is like one scene. Um, Mrs. Cooper, who also comes out of the basement, she, I think, lights a cigarette or a candle or something like that, and she reacts negatively to the fire. And that's something they established earlier in the movie, that these that these zombies don't yeah. like fire. Well, I mean, we already kind of have that going on with the Cooper's daughter. Lily, well, that too, yeah. I, yeah Lily, but that's, it, that character's not as prominent as Barbara is. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, she's <laughs> she's safely stowed away in the basement, whereas Barbara's, like, right there in the in the living room with mm-hmm. everybody else. Yeah. Also, another classic kind of zombie trope. Someone's infected, but we don't know. Yeah. And it's going to come out at the worst possible time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just, like, I'm, I'm judging this movie on a curve because, well, I, yeah, again, that's, it's that's fair. Again, this was an independent movie shot in Pittsburgh, of all places. Mm-hmm. I think the INDB trivia, like, this is kind of a stunning and, and weird fact, mm-hmm. um, probably not, probably impossible to verify, but this, that this was the first movie feature film ever shot in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. which makes sense when you consider how inaccessible, you know, high-quality filmmaking technology was at the time, and also at the fact that Pittsburgh is a blue-collar town, you know, not exactly known for, you know, people <laughs> wanting to live, like, Hollywood dreams there. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I don't know, like... I think what makes it work is the fact that the performances and, again, the character dynamics kind of really make it come alive in the quieter moments when zombies aren't constantly attacking. And I think yeah, that, that for a monster movie to achieve is quite an achievement in and of itself. Yeah, contrast, that to, yeah contrast that to Godzilla, which we talked about last week. Mm-hmm. Like, we joked it was like a... Or at least I joked it was like a <laughs> Days of Our Lives episode. Like, exactly, yeah. We weren't really invested in, the, in these characters' personal personal quibbles in light of a, a huge mega disaster <laughs> well it's also in contrast with godzilla it's like the threat doesn't feel so imminent like That's there's true. literally zombies on the other side of the wall <laughs> yeah no but you're right i mean i guess it, it, part of part of why we're more invested in the characters because they feel real and are invested in the solution to the immediate problem <laughs> mm-hmm. they just have different ways of going about it and yeah, they have to whereas, come to a consensus. Yeah, whereas, again, Independence Day, like, oh, no, now I'm stuck here with my ex-wife. <laughs> <laughs> or oh, am I going to achieve my dream of going into space? You know? <laughs> They're kind of laser-focused on uh, the problem at hand, and so that's why you identify with them immediately. We're making a lot of interesting comparisons to Nine Living Dead. It's like, it's like uh, Godzilla, it's like Psycho, it's like Independence Day. <laughs> I mean, again, it's a hard movie to criticize because this is like Ur-text. This is like, you know, criticizing like the Epic of Gilgamesh, which, which seriously has some third act structural problems. But <laughs> Well, I mean, if we're going to laud it for anything else, I mean, I was also going to say the production design and the makeup yeah, is also a... like, yeah, if you talk about it being Ur-text, um, compare the the makeup or the vision of zombies in this movie where they just have kind of like black eyeshadow. <laughs> I think it helps that the cameras are pretty low quality. Yeah, versus um, The Walking Dead, which has obviously the the highest level of makeup design on television today. Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah, even within the lim- but it's still convincing. Like, even within the limits of an independent film shot by you know non not really non professionals, but like again, it's still like really impressive. Yeah, and uh, it's amazing how much attention to detail went into continuity. Like apparently oh, yeah, there's a there's too. a moment where they're uh you know boarding up the walls again classic zombie trope, and yep. apparently if you like you know increase you can see where they marked where he should hit the nails so that way if they had to do another take he would be hitting exactly where it needs to be yeah which again or like can... I wouldn't notice if they did a cut or anything like that yeah they, you can also see 
apparently this is just a goof or something like that. You can see that they marked which door was which. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like who, who would have thought like script supervision in this little hundred thousand dollar production? <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I guess yeah, I, we should we should just honor the achievement that this movie is. <laughs> I know it's actually quite an, it's quite an accomplishment. Yeah, so I I think it, if we were to sum up, I mean it's definitely worth checking out. Mm-hmm. I mean you can check it out pretty much anywhere. It's in the public exactly. domain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I watched the digitally remastered version on Amazon Prime, which, <laughs> I don't know, me thinks you doth protest too much. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just watched the one on YouTube. The oh, transfer okay. they had on YouTube was stunning. It was actually incredible. <laughs> I mean, there's there's a lot of good uh, craft to this movie, like just the shading and the lighting and just the shadows that they're able to accomplish. Is... Yeah. Well, I think, I think a, a part of that is also the black and white photography. Mm-hmm. I think if you see that in a color movie, like, like it looks like people are all standing under shop lights, but mm-hmm. like in black and white, like yeah, you can. There's greater contrast between what little color there is, so <laughs> or lack of color there is. So yeah, the the lighting also works. Again, it also t- speaks to the cheapness of this movie. They couldn't get broader distribution because no major studio wanted to release a black and white movie in the late 1960s. It was all about color at this point. Exactly. Also, the subject matter is cannibalism, so... That's, that's true. <laughs> I guess, was were there any moments that really, like, shocked or scared you? Not I guess the issue we should talk about, yeah, as a yeah as a horror movie, like, how effective was it as a horror movie today in 2017? Um... Again, like, you get invested in the characters, so as a movie, it succeeds. In terms yeah. of it being a quote-unquote horror movie, um, maybe when they're kind of forced into the basement, I got a little concerned. Because, again, I wasn't expecting the Coopers to be resurrected. Spoiler alert, the Coopers die. <laughs> <laughs> Their daughter... No, that's, yeah, that's one moment I, I did want to talk about that I thought was effective mm-hmm. as a horror movie. First, that opening scene where Barbara is running... Mm-hmm. Like I was kind of, I was again, I was invested in her survival, but also just the energy of that scene in the cuts. It's very disorienting and really contributed to the to the anxiety of the scene. Mm-hmm. But also, you're right, the Coopers. Like, there's something very disturbing about a daughter um, <laughs> being zombified and then eating her father. Mm-hmm. Well, also, like the weird thing about the zombies in this movie is that they're like capable of some thought because we see them using tools quite frequently throughout yes. the movie they're hurling rocks and like breaking things and the daughter when she becomes zombified she takes a spade and starts stabbing the mother and this actually took me out of the movie because all of a sudden her uh screams become very echoey and it's like dream like like oh no wow <laughs> actually i think that unnerved me a little bit more because also i think there's more, there's more film grain like even mm. in this even in this high quality transfer that I saw on YouTube, oh, okay. <laughs> there's greater film grain in the in the or there's kind of like a the, the shadows are a little less defined or like it, yeah it was like more like a like a blob effect or something like a bloom effect around the mm. around the mother when she's backing up like please don't kill me with that trowel or you know <laughs> and yeah you're right that I'm amazed that that little trope hasn't survived that zombies are still capable of knowing how a car door works <laughs> exactly <or> yeah <laughs> using tools to get at their victims I don't think they were thinking about it too much they again they don't even refer to them as zombies they're technically ghouls <laughs> ghouls yeah and they call it mass murder so mm-hmm. actually like, rather than like yeah like a monstrous horde there's one other thing I wanted to bring up which is for some reason I love it when they cut to a newsreel because I, <laughs> you mean exposition dumps <laughs> exactly for some reason it kind of puts me into the movie because in real life this is what we would do and there's something interesting about it for me because like uh again comparisons to previous episodes the day the earth stood still it opens on a newsreel yeah and what i like about this trope is the fact that there's something about a newscaster kind of calmly reading the report and calmly reading what's going on that makes it kind of seem banal like i like the kind of like dip that it takes it so we can kind of ramp up again yeah and i appreciated that kind of scene in the movie because they eventually get a tv kind of prop it up get it to work again and it kind of explains like it goes on a little backstory like oh the radiation from venus from a from a, a satellite that fell back to earth that's what's causing the zombies to resurrect or whatever 
But I don't yeah. know. I appreciated that scene because again, it was like a nice little kind of quiet moment. And I don't know. For some reason, exposition dumps, if they're coming from a newscaster, work for me in movies. I don't <laughs> okay. know why. <laughs> I think I think it has to be convincing. That was the thing. Okay. And thankfully, in this movie, it is convincing. Oh, absolutely. You have yeah, the reporter there, following. There appears to be yeah. Yeah, a politician. Like, what 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 are we going to do about this, sir? <laughs> you know. Yeah, they're talking about their. They're talking to their uh, NASA technicians or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the newscasts are even like questions like, why the heck are they talking about NASA? Or I forget who questions it. Why the heck are they talking about, you know, NASA to NASA scientists about a terrestrial problem? But mm-hmm. um, you're right. It's very convincing. It, again, it does look like a genuine news report. Cameras following guys out to their car mm-hmm. and reporters asking questions like that's It's all done. It plays out very naturally. Mm-hmm. And it legitimately does look like it takes place in Washington D.C. I'm not sure if they, they actually filmed there, but yeah, they probably again. I think I they think probably filmed works. at some courthouse near Pittsburgh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. This looks like K Street or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think that scene it it only kind of works. And also, like we need we need that connection to our main characters. And yeah, you do see kind of cutbacks to how um, Dwayne, Mr. Cooper, and or uh, are reacting and how Barbara is not reacting. <laughs> exactly. Cause again, she's pretty much catatonic at this point. <laughs> mm-hmm. She's seen her brother get devoured. So yeah. Speaking of which, that was a great cameo by you. What? Oh, that was a great cameo by you. <laughs> Come on. It's nothing like <laughs> me. If you want to know what John looks like, <sighs> I wish I had that body and that suit. <laughs> That's a good looking suit. <laughs> Yeah, you're, yeah, you're not you're not quite as lanky as him, but if you want to know what John's uh, face shape is, <laughs> they're coming to get you, Bob. Yeah, just yeah, just look at, just take a take a peer at Johnny in this opening. Thing. That's pretty much John. <laughs> Wait, his name's Johnny. It was me. <laughs> yes. No, but I think he had an H in it though. Oh well, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the ending. Oh yeah. Well, because again, <laughs> I guess we mentioned it briefly, but yeah, this is where people really graft on the the big cultural meaning behind this movie. Mm-hmm. So the only survivor is Ben. He makes it through the night somehow. Yes. Well, he he hides down in the basement, mm-hmm. which ironically he didn't want to do in the first place. But mm-hmm. it's nice to see a character be wrong. Yeah, he sadly has to you know shoot the Cooper family all in the head. Mm-hmm. They do establish that too. Yep, that you have to uh, either shoot or impale a zombie in the head to kill them for good and uh the next morning we see a corral a big posse led by the sheriff you know dealing with all these ghouls they're just going from place to place just shooting everything they can and they eventually yep. make it on the farmhouse sorry can i just uh, before we go move on with this posse yes i just want to make a note of one of my favorite line deliveries of all time <laughs> Go for it. There's something about these 70s movies and these extras that somehow just have the perfect cadence to thing. I'm, I'm speaking specifically of that moment in Jaws mm-hmm. where Richard Dreyfus tells him it's a tiger shark and he goes, a what? <laughs> <laughs> and in this movie, there's news, put, there's news footage of this posse that's just going around shooting zombies and they're kind of nonplussed by it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they interview a member of this posse <laughs> and um, they basically say, like, what's going on with these zombies? And like, well, they're dead. They're all messed up. <laughs> that is a great line. <laughs> it's just a brilliant line, yeah. Well, part of the reason why I like this movie, I feel like, is because it doesn't end apocalyptically. That's true, yeah. Or at least, you know, obviously until the yeah, dawn. At least of the not day. for our yeah, not not for our main character though, because yeah. he eventually gets out of the basement. This posse is just, you know, walking through this walking through this field, you know, taking out zombies mm-hmm. left and right. And Ben's being careful because again he doesn't really know what's going on. And then they mm-hmm. see him and shoop, shoot him immediately, yep. right through the yep. head. Yeah, just shoot him right in the, between the eyes. Yeah, again, like, kind of careless and nonplussed by it. Mm-hmm. And they just say, yep, throw him on the fire, too. Yep. They didn't, never realized he was a survivor. Yeah. Because why would they assume that? Yeah. He's a dangerous again, I, thing. <laughs> right? <laughs> Isn't that the message? I, I think this was always supposed to be the tragically ironic ending. Mm-hmm. However, when you have a black protagonist, obviously it takes on much greater resonance. Yep. Um, although, key difference, <laughs> technically Ben was armed. <laughs> hey. Oh, God. Oh, God. I'm going to regret <laughs> Hey, that's his right as an American, okay? <laughs> Folks, no. let me tell you about The fake news media is trying to divide us. 
<laughs> Let me tell you about what I heard on Alex Jones. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm technically a, a group that uh, that supports Hunter's rights, but really I'm going to do ads about how <laughs> the mainstream media is trying to divide us and we should kill them all. I mean, uh, uh, fight them all somehow. <laughs> Hunter's rights. I need that automatic weapon to kill deer. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, irony. Anyway. But yeah, very good film. It's a, Yeah, you're right. It's a solid conclusion to the story mm-hmm. in that yeah, in spite of the survival, again, it's tragically ironic, but still it doesn't end on a exactly a, 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 an apocalyptic or dreary note. Instead, more of a... Or not not, a, not dreary. It is dreary. What am I saying? It's, but, it's tragic, but not like overly so with like the collapse of all of civilization. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I kind of like that because I feel like it brings the story more full circle. It's like mm. the, zombie, you know, the zombie uprising happens and then it's eventually quelled, yeah. but not without losses. That's why I, that's why I think I appreciate this more than a normal zombie fair where it's like, oh, society's collapsed, you know. The Raccoon yeah. Corporation, they ruined everything. <laughs> How are we going to deal with these walkers? <laughs> Let's just sit in one place for ten hours. <laughs> What's the cheapest, most cost-effective way to film to deal with these walkers? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, come on, AMC. You got the highest-rated show on television, you know. All that budget goes to makeup. That's true. It doesn't go to the actors, who they just dispose of <laughs> when they try to re- renegotiate. Yep. Anyone can be killed at any time, specifically when yeah. they ask for too much money. Yes. Sorry, Stephen Yun. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Hey, he's moving on to bigger and better things. He oh, was yeah. Oja. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's the lead voice in a movie about the nativity. There you go. Yeah. So, way to, way to go, kid. Everything's kid. coming up to He's older than we are. <laughs> All right, Vince, hit him in the head, right between the eyes. Good shot. Okay, he's dead. Let's go get him. That's another one for the fire. In any event, yep. Not a Living Dead, very solid. Mm-hmm. Highly recommended. Yeah. Again, I think it kind of earns a classic status. Like you said, it's Urtext. It's the OG. It's the mm-hmm. original. <laughs> yep. And and pretty much any technical flaws are forgivable. Absolutely. Yep. Well, what few there are. Again, I was uh, my expectations were exceeded mm. in that department. What else can What else can we exceed in expectations, Greg? Hmm. I, I, I don't know, John, but, I you know, I... I desperately, I, de- I, I really need your help with something. Um, you know, I just, I, I can, I can, you know, stop at any time. I don't need it technically, but I, I just really need it this one time. Are you okay? Jones? This one time, and Are then you that's Jones it. Yes, that, yes. It, I just need it this one time, and then that's it. I promise. Okay. And now you're making me beg for it. Okay. I just, just please, just give it to me. All right. Craig, Craig, what, what, what you need, bro? What you need? That sweet, sweet spotlight. 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 It's time, Robbie. It's time. Well, I'm holding. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Again, this is the last time, I swear. All right. What do you have for spotlight this week, Rick? Um well, again, it's a it's a bad spotlight. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> because Greg, there uh, are no wrong spotlights. This is true. But I really wanted to talk about this latest season of South Park, in particular this latest episode. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Like a lot of South Park seasons in the past, you know, it's had its peaks and valleys. Mm-hmm. But this last episode in particular was a enormous peak. I could not wipe <laughs> the grin off my face. <laughs> it does feel like they are, they did have a bevy of ideas as opposed to some Latter-day South Park where they're just repeating the joke over and over again. <laughs> yes. Well, not just a bevy of ideas, also a proper story. Mm-hmm. And again, those ideas are the the jokes centered around that solid idea are so so solid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> again, that just made me grin throughout the entire twenty two minutes. So the uh, the episode is entitled "Hummels and Heroin," mm-hmm. and they're tackling the the opioid crisis. You know, and this is the other problem too. They feel the expectation to you know tackle whatever current events going on. So mm-hmm. sometimes that can be a good thing. Sometimes it leads to some you know not exactly well thought out episodes, but. This time they, they tackle it by basically making 
old age homes into prisons. <laughs> and that becomes the, the network with which uh, the opioid crisis has taken over South Park. Mm-hmm. And they're trading their opioids for little Hummel statues. Yes. <laughs> which such, I, I, such popular Hummel statues as Happy Jogger and Mary Walker. Yes. <laughs> they're literally like the same statue. <laughs> yeah. That's the only idea that's unrealized because there's there's a there's a point that somebody has a Hummel statue up their ass and I thought that's that's how they delivered the drugs, mm. <laughs> or there was some drug component in there. But anyway, uh, our our lead character Stan, his grandpa is consigned to this uh, this old this old folks home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a great rap song <laughs> establishing the old folks home <laughs> with little nods to hospice care and things like that. Mm-hmm. Again, hysterical. Again, I can't wipe the grin off my face right now just thinking about it. And then, but then there's a lead bitch that he's kind of, uh, that Grandpa Marsh is uh, technically under the thumb of, <laughs> mm-hmm. who uh, just swaggers around the, the old folks' home. She doesn't even hold in her farts anymore <laughs> or clean the pee stain off her, off her moo-moo. <laughs> She's the lead bitch because she has the best homo collection. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> it's essentially the network by which this latest drug crisis is happening is that uh, they, they get overprescribed opiates, the old folks then sell it to the town, and then it, uh, it uh, disproportionately affects the children's entertainers in the town. And that's how they bring in the kids. <laughs> well, I do love how kind of subtle they make it a point that this is greatly affecting children entertainers. Like, that's not, true, not yeah. overly implying, like, why do children entertainers need all these drugs? <laughs> well, if you had this job, you would need them as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, getting getting at the the lowest or most most desperate in our society, <laughs> and that's that's where the the opening scene is really. Um, they got Chuck E. Cheese, <laughs> and their South Park is always good for one sight gag mm-hmm. that uh, repulses you and yet elicits gut busting laughs too. <laughs> And in this case, it's a man in a Chuck E. Cheese costume. He can barely get on stage and perform. He's so high. But then he vomits, launching chunks out of every hole inside the costume head, including the ears, nose, and mouth. Well, it, so this season, they kind of promised that they would go a little bit back to basics and not try to like yeah. tackle current issues as much, which they still are doing. But what I do think of is making the season work is that they are going back to kind of an episodic format and also yeah, so focused definitely. on the kids a little bit more. Cause That's true, too, yeah. Ironically, like, latter-day South Park, it feels like the kids are kind of, like, sidelined in their own story. Yeah. That they really don't oh, have a lot of Randy agency. Beca- yeah, Randy's become the prototypical sitcom dad. Sort exactly, of. yeah. And it's nice to see an episode where the kids have agency, they're making decisions, and they're actually at the center of the story again. Yeah. And they're and coming again, from a good place. Yeah, they're genuinely invested, as opposed to most episodes of South Park where the kids are kind of like nonchalant and don't really care. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and yes, the the solid conceit that's kind of that's kind of the framework for the story also works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so again, you know, season twenty one now, which is again, I think people take for granted like how <laughs> how long that uh, the Simpsons and South Park have been, you know, relatively solid, but. You know, maybe maybe it's not a banner season or whatever, but this is definitely one of the, I think one of my favorite episodes of all time. <laughs> I don't <sighs> wasting a, a spotlight on one episode, one episode yeah, yeah, exactly. in and of itself. Yes. Come on, Craig. yes, and I I feel I've sold it. I feel like my description of that <laughs> that gag where a man vomits into his mascot head. <laughs> That's enough. <laughs> I know. Everybody's parents who was listening to this will just immediately rush to their Hulu or you know ComedyCentral.com <laughs> webpage and just take in the brilliance of this episode. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to recommend a whole series, at least a season so far, although I've only, yeah. I'm only about halfway through with it. I'm going to okay. recommend... <laughs> I'm going to yeah. recommend another Netflix original series, Mindhunter. Okay. Another Netflix original series? I'm like, sorry, they're just you know, they're just so much content. I know. Actually, they speaking of everything. South Park, yeah, they approve everything. <laughs> Last week, they made the point that uh, Netflix is just greenlighting everything to the point yes. where they just call up Netflix and it says, and you'll be like, "You're greenlit." <laughs> Hello, this is Brian from Netflix. You're greenlit. How can I help you today? <laughs> yeah. But John, tell us tell us about Mindhunter. Mindhunter. From the mind of David Fincher. <laughs> Mindhunter. Um. <laughs> So it is a David Fincher-produced series. I think he directed the season premiere and the season finale. And what's interesting... Much like House of Cards. Yes. So obviously this will go off the rails after the first season. Um, 
so I might as well recommend it now. Um, yeah. David Fincher, it seems like, kind of challenges himself as like, how can I make this as good with with the least amount of things I can have going on in a story at one time? Okay, interesting. <laughs> so it's atmospheric is what you're saying. Exactly, it's very atmospheric, even though story-wise there's not a lot going on. It's based on a book, uh, Mind Hunters, which is about the early days of um, psychological profiling from the FBI. Yes, I believe it's profiles a man who would then become the basis for the Jack Crawford character in the Sons of the Lambs movies. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and you see Lander, a lot yeah. of those parallels throughout this series. The biggest problem is though, in Sons of the Lambs, they were literally hunting a serial killer, whereas here there's not so much of that uh, kind of sense of urgency. <laughs> Okay. You do see them catch a few killers here and then. It's a little episodic, but there's no kind of overarching mm-hmm. sense of urgency. We do get little hints of a big-time serial killer that they'll eventually catch, I assume. Because, again, it's The Zodiac based... Killer. Uh, no, not the Zodiac Killer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> nice try. It's the BTK Killer, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. But, again, like, literally, it's like the little intros are these 30-second things of, like, how he goes about his day. So. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You see him mailing, like, a note. You see him, like, you know, playing with his uh, duct tape. You see him, you know, talking to a woman that is assumed to be one of his victims. Yeah. But uh, good performances, and again, great mood and atmosphere is achieved throughout this series. Well, speaking of the performances, I wanted to... um, The lead of this series is a guy named Jonathan Groff, Mm -hmm. who you may recognize as the voice of... Who is it? Kristoff in Frozen? No, it's Hans. Hans, excuse me, and uh, the lead of Looking, who <laughs> was just a, a nice, sweet little boy or whatever on the streets of San Francisco. So <laughs> I was wondering how he does here. Like this is this probably is much more grown up you know, material, isn't it? Um, I was wondering how he acquits himself. He he's playing Holden Ford, and yeah. great made up name, <laughs> classic seventies detective name. Um, yeah. He plays him very again. There's that word again, cerebral. He's okay. almost like, I don't want to go so far as Asperger-y, because <laughs> he does have a girlfriend in the series. But, you know, okay. he, it, it shows, it, the way he characterizes him is very kind of naive. He's very smart. And again, okay. he's but he's developing a technique that is kind of unproven. And he has to prove this to his higher-ups that this is actually worth investigating and looking into. And they pair him with uh, his partner, Bill Trench, who's kind of like another classic kind of like uh, cop archetype. He's fat. He's constantly smoking. He's like, I've seen it mm-hmm. all before. And, you know, so they have a nice kind of like double act going on between them. They're forced to... to kind of travel the country interviewing all these sequence killers. They don't call them serial killers yet. They call them sequence killers. They drive around in all these rental cars and they have to share a hotel room. So you see them getting on each other's nerves and stuff like that. And they bounce off each other very well. So if there's kind of a highlight to the series, besides, you know, the interviews with the serial killers, um, they, the kind of big reoccurring one, they uh, interview Ed, oh shit, what's his name? Uh, Ed Gein? I think so. Yeah, I think it's Ed Gein. I, I can't remember. It's the co-ed killer. Okay, maybe that's not him. I just know the only reason I know Ed Gein off the top of my head is because he was the basis for Anthony Perkins' character in Psycho and inspired partially Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, no, and that's, like, that's the, again, like, going back to those Silence of the Lambs parallels, he's pretty much the closest thing you get to a Hannibal Lecter kind of character. Okay. Very um, articulate, very smart, very mm-hmm. aware that he's, like, sick in the head. But again, that's what makes him capable to like to speak to it, and okay. so and obviously he likes doing these interviews because you know he likes the attention. <laughs> so they frequently go back to him, and you know the way he talks is very, you know, serene, very calm. But again, he's like this six foot nine giant, <laughs> and you know they you know he, they're doing they're interviewing him in this room and they unshackle him and you know it's like. A little nerve-wracking to see what he's capable of, and they know what he's capable of, because, again, he's killed all these women. So, yeah, that's probably, again, the highlight of the show, is this performance. Okay. Well, I'll I'll do my best to catch up on this one, too. It was on my list. I thought thought you would love the show, because, again, you're, like, a big David Fitcher fan. You cream your pants whenever he comes out with something. Let's not go that far, okay? (laughs) 
Yes, I'm a fan of David Fincher. I'm a, I'm a fan of true crime and the conceit of the show. Mm-hmm. However, I was catching up on other things, namely another Netflix show that we may discuss on a future episode. We'll see. Ooh. Yeah. A tease. I, yeah. You and I think it's worthy of discussion. I'm not sure if it's worthy of, you know, 1900 articles on Vulture, but, you know, we'll, t- we'll, we'll talk about that one, too. Content. Yes. The internet craves content. More Indeed content. <laughs> Just like Speaking zombies. of content, though, bro. Oh. Where where can people get the best content on the internet? <laughs> the best content can be found when you follow aspiring snobs on social media, such as Twitter and Facebook. Yes, we have the best stuff on there. Mm-hmm. Again, hysterical stuff. Again, we we can we can will movie franchises <laughs> into existence via via Twitter. This Just has been proven. Wait until we've harnessed this power. Yes, and then you come to us. You either contact us. Through email or social media, you can find us at aspiringsnobs at gmail dot com. Yeah, and, we'll and you'll be get able an automatic to... reply. You are greenlit. You're approved. <laughs> and you just send us our, your ideas, and we will will them into existence through the power of this podcast. Yes. We are influencers. Okay. Yes. Yes. Now it does require a fifteen hundred dollar deposit. So go to your Western Union. I'll send you the routing number, and then, <laughs> and then if we may be so bold, then you can. Like and subscribe us on many podcasting platforms. Absolutely. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, yeah. Podbeam. That's our new homepage. If you want to you know, check out our homepage, find us on Podbeam. Yes. You can f- catch up on old episodes on SoundCloud. You know. mm-hmm. We'll keep, we'll keep uh, our latest episodes around there, too. Mm-hmm. Or at least try. I'm having yeah. a little technical difficulties with that. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, yes. Our, our apologies for having. Stitcher also had some technical difficulties. They, they apologized to us, but you know, we apologize to you on their behalf. Okay. <laughs> so, Greg, you know, we've been watching a lot of horror movies this month, and honestly, I just need a break. I'm just, I can't handle this emotionally. Absolutely. So, well, I, think, I think we should do a little palate cleanser next week. Absolutely. Thankfully, we had a family member who recommended our next movie. Mm hmm. Actually, oh, should I say a fan? How about that? <laughs> family member sounds bad, but... Come on, all our fans are family members. Yeah, I know, yeah. I mean, when you're a fan, we treat you like family. Yep. So join the Aspiring Snobs family. <laughs> Thankfully, we had a, a, a recommendation for next week's movie. Yes, next week we'll be watching Young Frankenstein. <clears throat> John, it's Frankenstein. Oh, oh, I apologize. Yeah. But that'll round out our October uh, little horror fest here. There you go. With a pilot cleansing comedy. <laughs> yep. Still Halloween themed, so what else could you want? Yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah. Look at all that we do for you. I know. Gosh, and we ask for very little in return. Yeah. You know what? That fee went up to two grand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Freaking jerks. Let's get, yeah, let's get out of here before the FBI comes down on us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's why they'll come down on us. Yeah, because <laughs> of the money laundering. Yeah, not the bodies. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for listening. <laughs> and until next time, keep aspiring. <laughs>